2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty And I'm Sarah Dowley. And it's probably no secret if you listen to the podcast a lot that we're both really big book lovers, but... Thus far, at least, I haven't been much of a book collector. I don't know about you, Sarah. Me neither. I know I would definitely like to at some point, and we've talked about this ever since I got my Kindle last year. I've been dreaming about only buying books that I want to collect. First edition. Exactly. But that hasn't started yet. So while I've amassed quite a few paperbacks and some random hardback books over the years, you could hardly call it a collection. So that's one of the biggest things that I learned from researching today's podcast, though, about George Aarons a bunch of books, no matter how valuable they are, does not a collection make.
4: And no matter how much you love them, if you only went out and chose your favorite authors and your favorite books, it wouldn't really make a collection. And Aarons would really know what a collection was. He's been called, quote, one of the greatest contemporary bibliophiles. And over his lifetime, he created two separate book collections, which are now major collections at the New York Public Library. One is the Aarons Tobacco Collection, which opened to the public in January of 1944. The other is the Aarons Collection of Books and Parts and Associated Literature, which opened in February of 1957.
3: At this point, some of you out there, especially if you're not a bibliophile yourself, may be thinking, okay, so what? Why do I care about this guy who collected books? And old books, too. But what really makes Aaron's interesting, we think at least, besides the fact that he was also a businessman and an inventor, is the extremely focused approach that he took to his collections. He wasn't just collecting first editions, like Sarah mentioned before. His initial focus was simply Tobacco, And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a bit, of course. The other thing that really fascinated us was the process of hardcore book collecting that we learned about from researching this. Aaron's made book collecting into kind of an adventure, sometimes taking off across the pond at a moment's notice to pursue a volume that he really wanted.
4: He often compared it to a hunt, even.
3: Or a sport. And of course, then there's the history of the books and the other items in the collections themselves. They have pretty cool stories behind them. Some have even come from the hands of the likes of Queen Elizabeth I. So we're going to cover all of these aspects.
4: Yeah. And to cover all of these aspects, we've decided to take kind of an atypical approach to this episode. We're going to give you some background on Aaron's first and how he got into collecting in the first place and some of the stories behind items in the collection. But we also had a terrific interview with Michael Inman, who who's the curator of the rare books division at the New York Public Library, where the Errants collection is held. And he was a really great resource on the topic of Aarons, on his life and on book collecting and rare books in general. So we're including parts of that interview in this podcast
3: today as well. But of course, before we get into all that, we need to tell you a little bit about Aarons and not only how he got the collecting bug, but also how tobacco became part of the equation. Because it seems like a strange thing to have a collection centered around. It does, but it won't in a couple minutes. George Aarons, who was technically George Aarons Jr., was born in New York City on May 7, 1875. In a discussion of his family, you might find that the names can actually get kind of confusing, and it might be confusing if you try to look them up on your own, because obviously his father was also named George Aarons and later, on his son was as well, but we'll try to specify if we mention one of the other Georges in this podcast that we're doing so. So, Aaron's family business was the Allen and Ginter Tobacco Company, which was established by his great uncle, Major Lewis Ginter. And this company was known for creating the first cigarette trading cards, which were slipped into cigarette packs to give them kind of that stiff quality. And they also served as a form of advertising. And this was even before kids' trading cards came around. So it was kind of venturing into new territory of a sort. So, because of the family business, Aaron spent a lot of
4: time visiting Richmond, Virginia as a kid, because that was where the company was based. And in 1890, Allen and Ginter became part of the American Tobacco Company. I'm sure many of you have heard of that. But Aaron's family was still very much involved in that new company. And he started working there himself in 1896 between his junior and senior years studying at Columbia University. Then in 1897, he graduated from Columbia and he went on to earn his master's degree at Syracuse University. But he didn't just rest on getting a great education and settling into a comfortable job at the family business. He was enterprising, and he made his own name in that business as well. Around the turn of the century, he helped to establish the American Machine and Foundry Company and served as a director there. But he
3: also got into some inventing. He did, and I think we mentioned that in the intro of this podcast. One of his inventions in particular was a device that made it possible to make cigars with machines, and this was widely adopted in the industry. Later it was developed into a machine that rolled cigarettes. I mean, before this, cigarettes had to be rolled by hand, so you can imagine how it would make mass production possible and really kind of revolutionize things. And these patents ended up being a great source of wealth for him. So in a
4: lot of our podcasts, we would probably stop with this sort of stuff, this business life of his. And in truth, a lot of podcast subjects stop there, too. After all, I mean, if you're that accomplished, if you've made a name for yourself in business, if you're an inventor, why do you really need to do too much else? Some people might wonder. Uh, of course, Aaron's did have a personal life. He was married and he had two kids, a son and a daughter. We already mentioned the son. But along the way, he really went beyond his family life and his business life and took on a few hobbies too, mainly because of some advice he had gotten from his great uncle, Major Ginter, pretty early on. And there's an article by Sue Dickinson in Commonwealth Magazine where Aaron's actually recounted this advice in a talk he gave at the College of
3: William and Mary in 1939. Yeah, he said, on one of my many visits, and he's referring there to the visits to Virginia to visit his family, Major Ginter gave me some advice which I have never forgotten. It has added greatly to my happiness and I think may be of value to many of you here. He said, when you are young, have many hobbies, but let your business or profession come first. As you grow older, you will have to abandon some of them. The more you have, the less you will miss those that you have to give up.
4: So Aaron's really took this advice to heart and he started taking on different hobbies, trying to collect as many early on as he could. One was race car driving, but that didn't last very long for him. He drove a Mercedes, which was car number five in the first Vanderbilt Cup race, which took place on Long Island in October of 1904. He was 29 years old at the time. It was his first race, but he got into an accident that left him pretty badly injured and actually killed his mechanic. So that was the end of that, perhaps kind of proving his uncle's point, that you're going to have to abandon hobbies along the way.
3: One of his other hobbies, though, book collecting, of course, proved to be far safer than race car driving, and he did stick with that throughout his life. A bookseller, William Everts, warned Ahrens early on that he should specialize when it came to book collecting. According to an article that Ahrens prepared for Syracuse University students called Book Collecting As I Have Found It, Everts said, do not buy some 16th and 17th century plays and poems, some 19th and 20th century novels. That is not a collection. It is just a lot of books. Decide on a subject which interests you and stick to it. Someday you may find that you have formed a great collection, or at least one which will always interest you.
4: So Arendt's didn't have to think long and hard about what that focus of his collection would be, obviously. In that same William & Mary talk we mentioned earlier, Arendt said, quote, What could be more natural for me, with the background of tobacco in my family, than to specialize on books relating to the divine herb? So once he chose tobacco, he really went for it. But there's a bit of discrepancy regarding what work he started with and when exactly he started. Over the course of his life, he gave all sorts of ages, all pretty much on the younger side. But we wanted to talk to Michael Inman. What's the deal with this? What was his first book he bought? Here's what he had to say.
5: Aarons was in his early 20s when he bought his first book on tobacco. He bought his first book in uh, 1898. And there is a discrepancy as to which work was the first book that he published. By most accounts, it was selections from original contributions by James Thompson to Copes' Tobacco Plant, which had been published in 1889. But there are other works, uh, actually a couple of other works, which uh, at one time or another he said that he had bought first. The discrepancy probably lies partly in his memory, and then also it lies in the fact that in his accession ledger, which he kept fairly careful notes in as to what he bought, uh, he did list the selections from original contributions by James Thompson to have been the first book that he, he bought when he began collecting. So um, that's the book that I've always thought was probably um, was the first, or at least it's the first one of which we can be you know relatively certain.
3: So once Aaron's collection, his tobacco collection, got underway, he started out with the types of books you'd expect. Things with tobacco in the title or as the main subject, but even these focused works covered a broad range of takes on tobacco. There are history books, there are legal documents, books about the chemistry of tobacco, even medical texts. The oldest book in this collection is the first Latin edition of an account of Amerigo Vespucci's Travels, which also contains the first reference to the New World as America while tobacco isn't mentioned by name in this work, the book describes Native people off of what is now Venezuela chewing green leaves. So the assumption is that they were it's chewing tobacco. tobacco.
4: Yep. Another early piece from the collection includes the first mention of the Aztec reed cigarette and the first reference to tobacco smoking. And it even includes the first use of the word tobacco, which I think would have made a good... Um, good find for our Oxford English Dictionary episode. But there are all sorts of uh, items, like you said. Other items focus on herbals, for instance. One is a 1554 book that doesn't actually mention tobacco by name, but it contains the earliest illustration of it. So Aaron's really was willing to look broadly at this.
3: In his essay, Tobacco Leaves, Aaron's also talks about how he tried to collect books or documents that contain source material about the history of tobacco, like notes from the English Privy Council meetings, which I think is really interesting. It's through these documents that historians can trace the interlocking histories of tobacco, whether you're talking about the economic history, social or political and things aren't always positive, either, or pro-tobacco. As you might
4: expect from somebody who had made his career in the tobacco industry.
3: Right. And one of Arendt's most prized works was actually King James I's Counterblast to Tobacco. Apparently, while Elizabeth I, James' predecessor and kinswoman, enjoyed tobacco after Sir Walter Raleigh helped popularize it in her court, James was not a very big fan himself.
4: No, and interestingly, Arendt's own copy was one James must have been pretty proud of, because it's part of a specially bound set that he had made for his wife, Queen Anne. Although Arentz believed that the works were in such pristine condition, he had a hunch Queen Anne must have never actually read her husband's works.
3: Another major tobacco opponent was John Smith, who was the author of A General History of Virginia in it, he called tobacco, quote, the heathenish weed, since it would drive settlers to waste their time planting that finicky crop instead of food that they actually needed to survive. And we've talked about that connection between tobacco and
4: Virginia before in an earlier episode, the episode on the shipwreck that saved Jamestown, really one of my favorites, where John Roll, famous for being Pocahontas's husband, managed to smuggle some Central American variety of tobacco seeds into Virginia and started producing the more popular crop there where it really thrived and completely changed the economy of Virginia.
3: Yeah, and it really changed economies across the globe, too. Uh, tobacco became kind of like an international currency of a sort. Eventually, Aaron's began to expand his collection to include titles that dealt with tobacco in a more tangential way, too. For example, he collected baseball cards from cigarette advertising, including a Honus Wagner from 1910. These are considered the most expensive baseball cards Very around. Very rare.
4: Honus Wagner apparently was not into having baseball cards made of him. But there are also things that I think would appeal to a lot of you guys. Alice in Wonderland, that's included because there's a caterpillar who smokes a hookah and Errant's collected a first edition of it. Moby Dick, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, all included in that collection just because they have some scene or some mention of tobacco that he thought was important enough.
3: So, of course, this made us really think Of, I mean, you mentioned that Oxford English Dictionary, the William C. Minor podcast earlier. And that made us wonder, how did he find these references, some of which aren't really that obvious? And so we asked Michael Inman that very question, and here's what he had to say.
5: Well, some of them he came across, um, quite likely, just in the course of his reading and in the course of collecting. He would find um, references to other works related to the subject. Um, but I think it's safe to say that a great many of these works came to his attention through the, um, the advice or um, through information that was related to him by various book collectors and, and auction houses and so forth. Um, he had people out there in the antiquarian book world who were on the lookout for items which had a tobacco connection, however slight. And as those items came into their stock, they would then contact him and ask if it was something that he was interested in acquiring and, and then the, the transaction would take place. So it sort of went in both directions in terms of his own research on the subject and then also people on the lookout for things uh, for him.
0: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Glow
1: with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin, not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this pride glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy
2: Pride! Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty.
0: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously.
4: One of the most notably missing figures, though, of this more tangential type of collection is William Shakespeare. And it's kind of strange because of that opposition from King James. There was apparently a lot of references done during Jacobin drama. You know, people like to talk about what was considered taboo. And Ahrens even compared this to the multitude of alcohol references during Prohibition. But William Shakespeare is missing from Elizabethan, from Jacobin drama entirely. And there's a good reason for that. It's because he never wrote about tobacco. And Aaron's at one point uh, related a pretty funny story about Shakespeare and the lack of tobacco connections by talking about how he agreed to buy a Shakespeare first folio at one point, if and only if a mention of tobacco could be found. And he got a little nervous about that promise afterwards because he was expecting there wouldn't be any mentions. And he knew that even for him, buying a Shakespeare first folio would be kind of a... a hurt, put a hurt on his bank account. Quite an expensive venture. Certainly. But the best anybody could find was a passage from A Midsummer Night's Dream about pipes. And fortunately for Errands, it turned out to be about Oberon playing pipes of corn. Different pipe. Different kind of pipe. But I think it's so fascinating that Arendt's familiarity with all of these tangential references allowed him to actually draw some literary inferences from it. That total lack of tobacco references in Shakespeare's work contrasted with the frequent mentions of tobacco in Roger Bacon's work and ended up being proof enough for Errants that Bacon did not write Shakespeare.
3: So finally, one of the most interesting lines of study in the collection is not just the history of tobacco. the history of how tobacco was used. For example, a book by Christopher Columbus's Natural Son contains stories from Columbus's travels, including one describing Cuban Indians smoking cigars. Apparently, the sailors didn't know what was going on and thought perhaps the Indians were perfuming themselves with these cigars. But it wasn't long, obviously, before the
4: sailors took up smoking and started to take it back to the old world, even though folks back at home were pretty puzzled at first, you know, what was really going on. And one of the interesting items Aaron's collection includes is a record of a Spanish sailor being arrested during the Inquisition for smoke coming out of his mouth because he was having a smoke. (laughs) And folks thought that he must be possessed by the devil for something so horrifying to to be happening. But by the time he got out of prison, he found that everybody around him was smoking. It had become commonplace during just that, that time he was put away.
3: The first sailors seen smoking in London created a riot. People thought that they were actually drinking smoke. But as smoking caught on in England, some elegant men felt that they actually needed smoking teachers, people who would teach you how to look good they while you were smoking. They wanted to look cool, yeah. Not that it was okay at the time to walk around and smoke. Men would actually have to duck into apothecary shop, have a smoke, and then hit the streets again. So it made sense that tobacco was still considered medicinal yeah, by many, apothecary. and that's why
4: connection there.
3: Exactly. So it was like you had an excuse to be smoking. Obviously, tobacco and smoking can be a really controversial topic today for health-related reasons because of health-related concerns. Some of Aarons' inclusions reflect how it was controversial even throughout history. His collection contains critiques of tobacco through the ages, the earliest of which criticized the non-medicinal use of what was believed to be a medicine, as Very we just mentioned. Very
4: when you, ironic when you think about
3: today. It reminded me a lot of the Radium Girls podcast that we did last fall and how people would, would thought that radium was medicinal and they would use it even to treat cancer and things like that. And then later they figured out, oh, it's actually causing cancer. And uh, it's a similar sort of thing here with tobacco. One of the items that is in the collection, Tobacco Tortured, from fi- 1616, focuses on a degenerate family man who's ruined his life through tobacco. His wife pleads, quote, Oh, my husband, my husband, why dost thou so vainly preferred a vanishing filthy fume before my permanent virtues? Have I not here brought forth an army of children unto thee? And the description of
4: just this ragged man who's been destroyed by tobacco kind of reminds me of the classic after-school special almost, except that it's from 1616.
3: But thinking about all the controversies that have surrounded tobacco throughout the years and even up to today made us really wonder about how a collection of this sort is perceived. So we asked Michael about that. We asked Michael Inman, and he noted that they haven't really received a lot of flack for the tobacco collection, but that's probably because it's mostly historical. He said most of the volumes are actually pre-1900.
4: Well, and he also shared because of the huge number of items that are aren't really about tobacco. They just have that mention of it. About 50% of the people who use the collection, who consult it for their research, aren't really interested in the tobacco content at all. You know, they're interested in that Alice in Wonderland copy or The Wizard of Oz or whatever it may be, something completely apart from tobacco.
3: But tobacco wasn't all that Aaron's was interested in, as we mentioned in the intro to this podcast. In 1924, he started his second book collection, Books and Parts. So it was about a quarter of a century after he started that initial tobacco collection. And it just made us really curious. I mean, we had a sense of what books and parts are, but we wanted to talk to Michael a little bit about what that entails.
5: The books and parts collection uh, is, is, to my knowledge, is is a unique collection. I mean, there are other rare book collections out there uh, that have books and parts material, Um, material and parts, I should say. Uh, But what makes the Arendt's collection of books and parts so special is that, so far as I know, it's the only collection of its kind that's solely predicated on collecting material in parts. And by parts, I mean these are original works of literature in a great many genres, uh, which um, are still in their original serialized form, in the the individual paper wrappers that they came in. Uh, The the practice would usually have been to have those individual parts bound up into one uh, binding, but in fact these actually remain in their original serialized form i think that that probably uh, was part of the the appeal for era so that here just has had been the case with the, the tobacco part of the collection which also i believe is fairly unique in the sense that it's solely predicated along those lines of just dealing with tobacco here was another aspect of book collecting that uh could could focus upon that. Really was something that was um, the, the other people weren't collecting at that time, at any rate.
4: Michael also went on to theorize that starting the second collection really allowed Erins a great avenue for a perfectionist to take. I mean, he was a perfectionist, and if you collect books in parts, you can gradually assemble not just a complete set, but a perfect set. Something that was really appealing to Erins. But another another reason why he might have started the second collection is that it allowed him to pursue the chase. You know, like we talked about earlier, the hunt behind book collecting, it allowed him to maintain the pace of book collecting he'd gotten used to. Yeah, it was
3: really an adventure for him, as we mentioned. I mean, Sarah and I were really taken with one part of an essay we read where it said that Aarons would learn of a book that he wanted to get in London, and he would just decides on the spur of the moment get on to a boat. <laughs> take off, get on a boat, and go get it. And that really excited us. So we wanted to talk to Michael a little bit about that thrill of the chase and ask him what his favorite story or what are some of the most interesting stories of how Aaron's obtained a volume. And here's what he had to say.
5: The one that comes to mind is that for a great many years, he had had a nearly complete set of Hakluyt's voyages, and not only was this is a, this is a terribly important work in terms of North American history, in terms of voyages and travels, uh, and in terms of printing history, uh, but also the particular set that he had acquired had uh, belonged to Queen Elizabeth I. It bears her coat of arms on the the binding. He had a complete set of that work. It's a multi-volume uh, set except for one volume that he was missing. And finally, persistence paid off. He had been searching for it for years and years, and it finally turned up at, at auction, and he was able to acquire that missing volume. But this is something that transpired over a great many years, that he doggedly pursued this one missing volume out of a multi-volume set. Uh, he, he was sort of like a dog with a bone. He wouldn't let go of, <laughs> of something, and he always tried to, uh, to acquire the complete work, as I mentioned earlier. So that's one example. Uh, He went to great lengths to acquire all sorts of items. Um, Another example of something that he tried to uh, come by over a period of years, we're very lucky in the Errant's collection to have the original manuscript, the original four-act manuscript of Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest. And that's something that, again, he had to um, search for the complete set for a number of years, or, or the multi-volumes, because it's written in several notebooks. And he had to search for several years until he was able to assemble uh, that, those two works.
0: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in
1: your skin. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin, not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this pride glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your
2: favorite retailer. Happy Pride! Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty.
0: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at HowLifeUnfolds.com slash Papertarian.
4: I think another thing that surprised us during our research was that this is not a static collection. It's something that's grown and it's something that has been added to even after Parent's death. And the library still, I don't know, Michael talked a little bit about what acquiring books is like today, and he said while he hasn't jetted to London to, to obtain materials, there is still that kind of thrill of the chase element to pursuing a book that is just perfect for the collection, something that has high research value, but is also incredibly unique. And he said that they need to always of course focus on things that have a link to tobacco. That is the prime qualification for anything that's going to be in this collection, but it really does need to be important. It can't just mention tobacco. It has to almost live up to all the items that are already in the collection.
3: Right. He mentioned research value in particular. The items that they get must have some sort of research value, must have some sort of research value to them, I should say. And so, of course, talking about All of these volumes and their value made us really wonder what are Michael's favorite things in this collection as the curator. And so we posed a kind of interesting scenario to him. Probably a nightmare
4: scenario. (laughs) Probably
3: a nightmare, actually, for a curator like him. We asked if the building were burning down, what would he take with him? The importance of being
5: earnest is one of my favorites, certainly. There is a handwritten letter um, from Queen Elizabeth I to Charles IX of France, uh, in which she writes in French, uh, well, in response to Charles's offer, he had offered his brother's hand in marriage to Elizabeth in order to forge an alliance between France and England. And so she wrote back to him, uh, in this very sort of flowery, um, circumlocutionary prose, Oh, I love France, and I adore you, and I think your brother's great, and she goes <laughs> on, and on and at the very end of the letter, she says rather tersely, sort of, thanks, but no thanks. That's a good example, again, of Aarons' uh, very broad-mindedness in terms of collecting. For years, I wondered why that letter was in the collection, because there's no connection to tobacco that I can discern at all. And finally, after a number of years, I was able to find some notes that Aarons had written, where he explained that... He had acquired that item simply because uh, Elizabeth was the first modern female monarch who was known to smoke. So the, the connection there even was somewhat you know, tenuous, but uh, I, I suspect he saw the, that letter at auction or someone offered it to him, and it was just too tempting to pass up. So that's how he was probably able to justify acquiring it after the fact. So that letter, I think, there are several others um, from Sir Walter Raleigh and, and several other individuals from that period that are quite magnificent. There is another item that I, I really love is the first edition of The Wizard of Oz uh, that Frank Baum inscribed to his mother. Uh, very touching little inscription there um, where he writes a note to his mother. So that's, that's certainly wonderful. It, it's really hard to sort of draw the line, just two or three. I think we're, you know... Goodness forbid the building ever on fire, I would probably be in the building much longer than it was probably safe to be (laughs) trying to grab as many things as I could. Uh, But certainly those would be a a few of the top picks that come to mind. Um, If you were to ask me the same question tomorrow, I probably would give you a completely different list and, you know, could keep going on for the next several months.
4: So that drastic scenario, you know, the building burning down, what are you going to save, kind of led us to a less drastic scenario. One of how, how are these materials preserved? How do people use them? And it was interesting to hear that because this is a library, a lot of these museum worthy items are available to the public. You know, you can apply to, to consult with these materials and, look at them yourself, something I think Touch them. Yes, touch them. Something that I think really sets rare book libraries like this apart.
3: Yeah, and Michael told us a little bit about the preservation and how meticulous they have to be to make sure that these volumes do stay intact so that people can use them in the future as well. And so that's a big aspect of, of keeping the collections there. It's not just curating them and finding the right volumes and the thrill of the chase. It's making sure that they're, they're around for a while, that they're around for a while. And, uh, to that point, we also talked to him about the future of these collections, uh, thinking about you guys especially. I mean, will these ever be available for people to see, even if you can't make a trip all the way to the main building of the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue? And he mentioned that uh, there is a digitization project going on at the New York Public Library, as I'm sure there are in many libraries around the world, and uh, there are slowly, I think, converting all these volumes or as many as they can to digital versions. So someday you may be able to look this up from the comfort of your home.
4: Yeah, and that really does have two two values to it. One, that if you have these high-quality reproductions, digital reproductions, not as many people need to touch that manuscript of importance of being earnest if they're researching it uh, but also yeah people who can't make it to New York can t- can take a look at some of this stuff take a look at that baseball card or the counter blast or whatever it may be
3: obviously that holds a lot of allure for us we always need more materials for research and so this was kind of a little bit of a vanity podcast for us I guess <laughs> in that sense because or maybe that question in particular was because we we really would love to have Access to these, but that's about all we have for this episode on George Aaron's and his collection. Um, I would love to know if any listeners out there have their own collections, books or otherwise, that they've started as hobbies, side projects, and um, have seen grown throughout the years. I mean, I would really. I have hobbies, but my hobbies are like playing soccer or have been playing music or whatever. I haven't really collected anything ever, and that has always held a lot of fascination for me.
4: Well, and I really liked the idea of a focused book collection because it meant that even, even when he was young, even when he didn't have a lot of money to spend on some of these more magnificent items or money to go off to London and collect uh, a huge amount of works, He had a collection, even with just a few items, and that was the appeal. You know, if you have this focus to your collection, even a few books are a collection, then. You don't need an entire library.
3: Well, I think that's a more hopeful way to look at it. So if you do have, if you've started, even if it's with just a few books, a book collection or any sort of collection, and you want to share that with us, please write us. We're at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com. You can also look us up on Facebook or uh, on Twitter at Missed in History.
4: And we also have a great article out there for all of you guys who are trying to choose the prime things you'll be adding to your future collection. It's called Top Ten Rare Books, and you can find it by searching on our homepage at www.house.com.
0: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.
1: Long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer.
3: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
5: Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV, Can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is.